so Juliet is the director of Ahead for Work. She has been working in the fields of leadership and workplace productivity for the past 25 years, helping individuals and their organizations thrive in times of change and uncertainty. She's a major driving force behind mindfulness in the workplace internationally, recently delivering workshops and keynotes in the UK, the Netherlands, the USA, and China. Juliet's unique approach is based on the latest neuroscience, leadership, and intention research findings. You can learn more about her work at www.aheadforwork.com. So, Juliet, um, let's just get started whenever you're ready. I'm really looking forward to this, and good luck. Thanks, Niall, and thanks for inviting me to talk today. I'm really delighted to be here today to share my work and research. And I'd like to start today's session with a little story. So just imagine the scene. There's a terrible flood, and a man is trapped on the rooftop, and he's a very devout man. He's got a good faith in God, so he's praying to God and asking for help. And eventually, half an hour or so later, a rowing boat comes by, and the man in the rowing boat says, you know, jump in, I can save you. And he says, no, you know, it's okay, God's going to save me. And the rowing boat passes on by. So he keeps on praying to God. And an hour or so later, with the water now up to halfway up the house, a motorboat arrives. And the man in the motorboat says the same, you know, jump in, come on, I'm going to save you. And he says, look, thank you so much, but no, it's perfectly okay. God's going to save me. I have faith. And so the motorboat leaves. The water continues to rise. And eventually it's just at the eaves of the house below the roof and a helicopter comes and he throws down a rope and he says, grab this rope. I'm going to lift you to safety. And again, the man says, you know, thank you, but I'm praying to God and he is definitely going to save me. The helicopter tries to reason with the man, but eventually, reluctantly, the helicopter flies away. The water continues to rise. And sadly, the man drowns. Now, when he gets to heaven, he decides to have a discussion with this about God. And he says to God, I had faith in you, but you didn't save me. You let me drown. I really don't understand why. And God replied, I sent you a rainboat. I sent you a motorboat and a helicopter. What more did you expect? Now, of course, this is an old joke. And some of you may have already heard it, but I'd like you to think about it for a moment. What was the intention of the man on the roof? Was his intention to live, to be saved, or to be saved by God? Um, it's an interesting question. When we set an intention, it's important to be very clear indeed about what we want, but then hold it lightly. Many unexpected things then emerge, such as a boat or a helicopter, and things that will help you to achieve your intention. So holding your attention too rigidly can lead to less than desirable outcomes, as we've just seen. Intentions really matter. They can make the difference between life and death. When you don't have clear intentions and you're juggling what feels like a million tasks every single day, you may well be heading down the wrong path. And that's because tasks and goals have nothing to do with your purpose and intention. You can pursue a goal for the next 10 or 20 years 
only to realize that this isn't what you wanted at all. Management guru Stephen Covey once said, if the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. So you could think of your intention setting as helping to set the wall against which you place the ladder. It's my intention that in this talk today, I really want to get you thinking about the role that intentions play in your life. Are intentions helping you to create the life you really want? And if not, why not? So before I launch into background research and the theories that underpin intention, I'd like you to meet Hank and Helen. Helen and Hank are real people that I know, although I've had to change their names and pictures and a few other details for confidentiality. They are very, very different people. But intention has changed both of their lives for the better. Helen is a hardworking, highly driven, very motivated senior manager working for a FTSE 100 global insurance specialist. And like many of my corporate clients, she struggled to identify her intentions at first. And her starting point for working with intention were her work-related goals. So her work-related goals were to enhance her communication skills, to become better at motivating a team, to support and manage change better, and also to improve staff retention within her division. Now, Hank, as you can see from the picture, is a somewhat singular individual. He's got a wealth of practical skills and he's great at problem solving. Hank was very, very clear on his intentions from the outset. He wanted to live off grid, away from people, being as self-sufficient as possible. And he's achieved this and now lives there. He earns a very small income doing DIY work, work and building work for people that he likes who are happy, shall we say, to put up with his somewhat idiosyncratic ways in order to get quality workmanship for a good price. Two very different people, but one powerful process. I'm going to be using Hank and Helen, the case studies, all the way through this presentation to illustrate the different ways that the intention journey can unfold. So today we're going to cover... Firstly, foundations and underpinning theory. So I want to talk to you about my journey, uh, how I got involved with mindfulness and intention and how I wrote the book and what informed it. I want to define what intention is. And I'd like to share with you some of the underpinning research that has informed my work. Next, I'm going to move on to models, frameworks and rationale. So we're going to start with intention forms because intentions come in all shapes and sizes. I'm going to touch upon the mind-brain connection, which informs the I am model. Lastly, we're going to move into applications and practicalities. So the difference between goals and intentions, and it's quite a, an important distinction, especially if you're doing corporate work. I want to share with you a model that I've developed to help people transition from goals towards intentions, which is called the think, feel, know model. I'm going to share with you the idea framework, which is a framework for helping people to activate and work with intention and end by talking about some possible 
future applications of this in the world of work. And of course, we're going to have plenty of time for questions and answers along the way. So please, you know, do keep asking questions in the box. I must admit that I, I won't be looking at them as I go through because it'll distract me. But Niall is very much in the case and he will be drawing these questions out ready to ask. So I want to start out by asking you, you know, what's your intention? So what is your intention for being at the weekend university on this beautiful sunny day? Well, at least where I am, it's beautiful and sunny. And more particularly, what's your intention for this session? And we're going to revisit this a little bit later. So I don't need you to put it into the chat box, but I would like you to just spend a moment to just consider what your intention is for this session. So I'm just going to pause for a moment to let you do so. So we'll revisit this a little bit further through the presentation. So I keep on, you know, it's wonderful thing habits, isn't it? I keep on pressing my keyboard to advance these slides when actually I need my clicker. So let's now move into the first section of my presentation. Some of the foundations and underpinning theories on intention. So I'd like to start by sharing a little bit about my intention journey. So this is a picture of me um, running a workshop actually on mindfulness. So my formal background is actually corporate learning and development. So I've worked in learning and development for more years than I'd like to mention. I'm really a leadership development specialist. I, I started off as a trainer, then writing competency frameworks, then I specialized in training design, so I have a master's in training and performance management. And I ended up spending quite an interesting few years working with the police um, as head of training design on the covert side, so designing covert policing methodologies and training. And from there, I transitioned as a learning consultant and then into leadership development. And it was actually while I was developing a leadership program that I realized that I'd ticked all the corporate boxes. So all the things that I felt that the client needed and the client had asked for were part of the leadership program that I designed for them. But there seemed to be something that was missing at a, a very, very deep level. But I didn't know what that something was. Certainly, I wanted to raise levels of consciousness and levels of awareness in leaders. And I wanted to find practical and grounded ways to do so. But I didn't know how I could do this. And then a few years later, I attended a coaching association conference and there was a talk on the neuroscience of mindfulness. So how mindfulness could structurally change the brain for the better in as little as six to eight weeks of practice. And that's what got me hooked. And I started to think about if I'm going to introduce mindfulness to a potentially sceptical audience, uh, what do I need to do? And I figured that what my audience were most likely to do was to clickety-click into Google. So I clicked into Google 
And at that time, so we're going back about uh, 12 years or so, I didn't like what I found because it was either very dull, dry and academic or somewhat hippie, spiritual, new agey. And either way, it was going to switch off my audience. So I ended up setting up a website called mindfulnet.org. I've just recently taken it down after almost 10 years. Um, but at that point, it was the only information where busy people could click and find out what is mindfulness, what's the research basis, what's it do, what are the impacts, and how can I learn more? And through trying to get content for mindfulnet.org, I ended up on a lot of online forums. And the discussion at the time was mindfulness at work. Great idea, but how the hell do we do it? And again, I didn't have the answers. So I organized the first Mindfulness at Work conference back in 2012 and pulled together some experts and tried to get the debate going. And in fact, that conference changed the trajectory of my life. So it led to another two conferences after. It led to me being invited to write a number of books on workplace mindfulness, acting as also an expert advisor for the Mindfulness or Party Parliamentary Group. And... Um, eventually trainer training. So I developed, um, or I helped to co-develop, I should say more accurately, a model for teaching mindfulness in the workplace context, because any of you who know anything about mindfulness, MBSR and MBCT are actually clinical interventions and are not best suited for a workplace environment. So we developed a six-week program, especially for the workplace called Workplace MT, and then later on trainer training uh, for that, because Previous to that, you had to go through a medical and therapeutic model of teaching mindfulness before you could then throw most of that away and teach in a totally different way in the workplace. And we trained about 270 people. And about five years ago now, I started to think about intention. And I started to recognize that if you have mindfulness, so you have self-awareness leading to better self-management, leading to better decisions, then this could be used to work with intention. And I started to understand that mindfulness, that intention actually underpins pretty much everything that we do. So talk a little bit about um, writing the book now. So my starting point was, as I've just mentioned, that, that intention in some shape or form really does uh, underpin most things that we do. So whether you believe in magic or not, if you unpick a magic ritual, it's just really focusing intent. That's the purpose of a ritual. If you think of energy healing, so Reiki, etc., again, it's focused intention. Prayer, focused intention. Mindfulness has three aspects, intention, attention, and attitude. And um, at the heart of that is the intention to be mindful, to be present, to be aware. The placebo effect, again, it's intention. So these are some of the books that have led me along the journey um, towards writing Intention Mattered. So obviously we start with some of John Kabat-Zinn's work, uh, Full Catastrophe Living and various other books. And what that's providing is self-awareness, self-management, and an awareness of the mind-body connection. So being able to tap into the messages that the body is sending you. Then we have a number of books on intention. 
and I'll come on to those in a minute. But I'd just like to sort of go backwards a little bit to with my organisational hat on here. You know, I've been studying organisational development trends for a number of years now, and I've noticed that forward-thinking organisations are moving more towards a purpose and incentive-driven model based on shared value and effectiveness. And in doing so, as a society, we're starting to transition from thinking to feeling to knowing. More about this later. But I've noticed that when organisations and individuals are able to connect with a sense of purpose and have clear intentions, the end result tends to be prosperity for all. And work becomes more engaging, inclusive and fair, which leads to well-being, wealth and a better society. And organisations tend to increase their economic returns and contribute to the wider community when they're working more with purpose and meaning. So what you'll notice in the middle of this section, we've talked about John's work, is a number of books that are well known on intentions. And the problem that I had with a number of these books was that the focus was very much on tapping into an external energy force. And this was a message that I suspected would disengage my target audience. The intention experiment, if any of you have read it, thoroughly recommended. It's got some really good scientific research on the impact of group intention. So again, it's tapping into a collective consciousness, but I thought this might be quite a, a difficult concept for many people who are typically my target audience. The Fourth That Counts is a great book, which again I recommend. It's written by a pharmaceutical scientist, David Hamilton, PhD, and he observed the placebo effect repeat itself time and time again, and some of David's findings helped me to shape the book's content and models. So initially when I wrote Intention Matters, it was very much about core intentions, so life-changing intentions, but the more that I've worked with intentions, especially when working with corporate clients, the more I've started to notice the power of micro-intentions. So how small intentions can make a really, really big difference. So what I wanted when I wrote Intention Matters for was for it to be a really down-to-earth book, focusing more on using our own internal consciousness and using this to shape our world. So I focus very much on what happens in the brain and in the world when we set an intention. And by simplifying the process, I hope that intention becomes much more accessible to a broader audience who might not otherwise have engaged with intention. And it certainly seems to be doing so. And a little bit about the formats. If any of you have actually seen the book in the flesh or even bought it, thank you very much if you have. It's a pocket-sized book. So again, when I set out to write the book, I set out to write quite a big academic tone, absolutely packed with the research underpinning intention. But then I reflected that very few people would actually read it. You know, they'd get it, they'd flick through it, they'd stick it on the shelf, but they wouldn't read and apply it. And what I'm really interested in here 
is actually getting people to apply intention, to think about intention and start using intention. So I ended up pulling a huge amount of content out of the book and turning it into a pocket-sized book that people were likely to carry around, read on a train, not that many of us are traveling on trains anymore, but just carry around and actually use. So that's why the book is written in the way that it is. And in a lot of ways, I've oversimplified uh, intention. There's a lot more complexity than is actually written into the book. But again, this is for a good reason. I really wanted people to be able to understand the basics of intention and to start to engage with it. So in effect, I'm starting the same journey as I had with mindfulness about 12 years ago with intention, uh, with the aim that I can one day bring this into the mainstream and this becomes the way that we do things both in our personal life, but also in a work environment. So I'd like to move on by having a quick poll. So Niall, could you launch poll number one, please? So if you'd like to just join in with poll number one, what do you think is the definition of an intention? So um, it's definitely split the audience, a goal or an, uh, a goal or an objective, an aim that guides an action, something that you want and plan to do, a determination to act a certain way, and abbreviation on the uh, poll, but the actual full definition of the last one is holding attention on a desired outcome. And holding attention requires will, which is a persistent, focused desire. So all of these are actually dictionary definitions of intention. So there's a lot of confusion out there about what intention is. And even amongst academics, there is no one universally agreed definition of intention. So for clarity within the book, I need to come up with a nice, simple, practical definition of intention. And this is what I came up with, that an intention is a deep, sincere desire coupled with a belief that it's possible. So DSD plus B equals intention. And this is based on quite a number of research studies, quite a lot of theories. So if I take that apart, because it's quite important to really understand this definition. So intention is a deep, sincere desire. So it's something that you really, really want. And in fact, I wrote you really, really want in the book initially. And then my copy editor went through and said, you sound like the Spice Girls. You need to remove that. You can't say that in the book. But I still come back to it. It's something that you really want. You don't want it at a superficial level. You want it with every fiber of your body. It just feels right. And for those of you who practice mindfulness or have a good um, mind-body connection, it's something you feel in your body. It just feels right. You have, a, you, you have a gut instinct that this is true. This is enduring. This is something you really, really want. So it's a deep, sincere desire. But the second part is important too, coupled with a belief that it's possible. So 
if you really want something, but at a conscious or unconscious level, you think, yeah, but it's never going to happen, then this will undermine your intention setting. So you have to have a belief that it's possible. Exactly how really doesn't matter. But you do have to believe that in some shape or form, it feels possible for it to happen. And as I'll share with you a little bit later, there is a process that we go through to help people to test that belief so that you get an alignment between the deep, sincere desire and the belief that it's possible. So intention is a deep, sincere desire coupled with a belief that it's possible. And I'll come back to that shortly. So I'd like to move on now by giving you a little bit of an overview of some of the research. And there's a very large volume of research written on intention. But I just want to share some of it with you today so that you can see how it, it, it informed and shaped my thinking and some of the models I'm going to present to you. So I'm going to start with research into free will and intention forms. So many of you may be familiar with the work of Liebert, who witnessed EEG readings that demonstrated that a decision had actually been made within the brain seconds before the person was aware that they'd actually made the decision. And Liebert initially concluded that this demonstrated that humans didn't have free will. Free will didn't exist. We were essentially an automaton. And we just had this illusion of free will. So if free will is an illusion, then intention setting is a complete waste of time. So moving on to 1987, Bratman developed a planning theory of intention. Intentions were treated in his research as elements of partial plans of action. And these plans played a basic role that supported the organisation of activities over time socially. So following and building on that, there was work by Mele in 2009, and this research concluded that there was powerful evidence that we do make conscious decisions and we do set intentions to act. Now, Liebay himself has now come around to Mele's way of thinking and now believes that his experiments do leave some room for free will, or rather, as he calls it, free won't. So, in other words, Liebay's thinking is that we now have the power of veto, that we may have a decision triggered within the brain, but then we can decide whether or not we go with it. Battery's work in 2005 distinguishes between several different types of intention. She presents a three-tiered uh, theory of intention that distinguishes between uh, future-directed or distal intentions and present-moment-directed proximal intentions um, and motor intentions. Um, her work has really strongly informed my work, especially my work on intention forms. And again, I will come on to that shortly. So moving on to the next bit of research, and this is on the subject of entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurial intentions are a major source of interest for researchers 
and there's a huge volume of research published on this subject. This is just a really tiny selection. The research centres on the role that intentions play in translating a business concept or the germ of an idea into an actual physical business. Barbara Bird's research in 1988 concluded that although entrepreneurial ideas begin with inspiration, intention and attention, sorry, I'm just going, going to read you that. So uh, Barbara Bird's uh, research concluded that although entrepreneurial ideas begin with inspiration, it's actually intention and attention that's needed to realise those ideas, so to turn the concept into reality. So again, underlining here the power of intention. Kellera's work in 2013 concluded that greater intentional stability lead entrepreneurs to behave in a way that is more likely to get their business started. Most recently, in 2019, there was research by Colin Donaldson, and this involved a five-year longitudinal data study with meticulous documentation of a large number of startup activities from 31,845 individuals. He concluded that, and I'm quoting this, uh, we find support for the impact of intentions on a number of new venture organising activities. He summarised by saying, we report that pre-startup experience and pre-startup intentions have a positive effect on a number of new venture organising activities carried out. So in other words, intention drive actions that make things happen in the real world. And this was, again, quite instrumental to my models and my work. It helped me to shape the I am framework that I'm going to be sharing with you very shortly. So moving on now to research into planned behaviour. In 1998, Odette and Wood concluded that future performance is heavily influenced by our intentions. In 2002, Milne and, Milne and Sheeran ran a controlled trial to see if, in, uh, if setting an intention could make more people partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise a day. And this is how they set the research up. It's, it's really interesting. So group one was the control group, and they were given a set of instructions that aimed to help them getting exercising daily. Group two received the same instruction as group one, but they were given some motivational talks uh, in addition. So they were given a bit of motivation to help the process along. Group three were given exactly the same as group two. So instructions how to exercise and a bit of motivation. But they were also asked to set an intention. And this intention included when and where they would exercise in the following week. The results were really interesting. Sorry, I know I'm saying this. This is one of my favorite bits of research. In the first and second groups, 35 to 38% of people did exercise at least once a week as a result. But in the third group, the intention group, 91% exercised at least once in the first week. And the researchers concluded that motivation had little impact on behaviour, but implementation intentions, as they called them, had a huge impact. So nearly doubled the results um, on the uptake of um, exercise. 
this research study uh, led to many, many more people um, exploring the impact of implementation intentions, all of which concluded that implementation intentions make a big difference to making things happen. And this has strengthened my belief since publishing the book of the importance of micro intentions and more about this very shortly. So moving on to the last area of research that I'd like to share with you, research on strategic intent. The term strategic intent emerged from an influential article by Harnell and Prahad in 1989 in executive management literature. And it's been taken up later as a matter of interest in all sorts of other academic literature. Strategic intent refers to the intentions that the CEO has for their business. If CEOs are clear about their intentions and able to communicate this effectively, this intention acts powerfully as a driver for business development and growth. Timothy O'Shaughnessy's work in 2016, a meta-analysis of research to date, concluded that strong performing companies often have intents that state their intentions for the future, and this will be clearly communicated to stakeholders by the chief executive officer. A statement of strategic intent gives symbolic guidance to workers at all levels of the organization to work together effectively over time through the uncertainties that the business environments present. Strategic intent provides a useful source of inspiration that helps to guide internal and external stakeholders when making decisions, especially when the business environment is uncertain and there is some ambiguity on the correct course of action. So to summarize the research to date, foundation of my work and intention focuses on self-awareness and self-management. Mindfulness training can really, really help with this. It's about taking personal responsibility for your thoughts and actions. It's designed to be really simple, practical and accessible. So it includes some of the more metaphysical explanations seen in former books of how intention works. It's based on research that's gathered over the last 30 years, which informs the models and frameworks contained in the book. Uh, moving on now, before this, the short break that we just had, we explored many of the different definitions of what intention is, and also some of the research basis for some of the models in Intention Matters. So we know that setting and communicating clear intentions drive performance in organisations. Intention and attention are needed to realise ideas. Intentions drive actions that make things happen in the real world and that motivation alone has little impact on behaviour, but intentions powerfully guide actions. The next part of my presentation will introduce you to some of the models that help people to work more productively with intentions. So 
when working with intentions, it's useful to understand the property of a number of different intention forms. And uh, this PowerPoint presentation, I'll very kindly up, um, uploaded to the website so that the presentation would go really smoothly. But in doing so, we've taken some of the really nice animation out of it. So you won't see the delight of the animation that underpins this, but to give you a little bit of an overview of it, um, we start with micro intentions. So micro intentions are little intentions that change a moment or a period of time or a day. If I then move to core intentions, core intentions are potentially life-changing and they contribute to something that you want in your life. So they're fairly long-term. Nested intentions going backwards tend to contribute to the achievement of a core intention. And then we had mega intentions. So intentions, mega intentions can be potentially um, world changing. Now, not everyone has to have a mega intention. This tends to be the preserve of the few. But I felt for completeness, I had to have this in the model. Now, in Intention Matters, I present a model where there's mega intention and just underneath that is core and just underneath that is nested and underneath that is a micro intention. And actually, this led to a certain amount of confusion because the inference of the diagram was that you had to have all of these working together in order to work with intention. You know, actually, some people work powerfully with core and nested. Some people work primarily with micro. So you don't have to have all of these. You don't have to have a progression. These are just different forms of intentions which I've given names. We could change the name if you like, but they're just names I came up with just so that we can talk about the properties of the different intention forms. Now, according to researcher Elizabeth Patchery, intentions may be proximal, near in time, or distal in the future. Now, in intention matters, I treat all intentions as present moment because when you set an intention in your brain, your brain starts working on them in the background. So in this respect, they are always present, even if it's just in your subconscious. Their fruition may be immediate or in some time. So in that way, they're proximal or they're distal. And I can't emphasize enough, and I'm probably going to emphasize it again in the presentation. You know, the more I work with intentions, the more I realize the important and impact of these micro intentions. Now, Hank who I introduced you to right at the beginning of this presentation, had a core intention to live off grid and to be as self-sufficient as possible. Hank's a really singular and unique individual. He survives on very little money and he doesn't really get out that much and he's happy that way. He only works with people that he likes and he spends the majority of his time alone, labouring away on his land, making something out of nothing usually from things that people have thrown away. And Hank makes really powerful use of micro-intentions, and here's an example of how he uses it. So Hank at one point was working with a friend and helping them to fit a new kitchen. And they decided on IKEA units, so a trip to IKEA became inevitable. So his client, Mary Jane, hated IKEA. 
the size of the car park, getting parked, the warehouse, the infuriating way that you have to follow a prescribed route around the shop and it takes forever. She just was dreading the whole thing. But Hank, on the other hand, he doesn't get out much and he saw it as an opportunity for a great day out. So he set a micro intention that that day in Ikea, he was going to have a good day out and as much fun as possible. So when they entered the car park, they got parked easier, in fact, than Mary Jane had uh, anticipated. And Mary Jane just wanted to get through the shop. She wants to select the units and she wants to get out again. But Hank had completely different ideas. So he insisted that they had to go and have a cup of coffee. And the cup of coffee extended to a cake. And Mary Jane just, just watched Hank and the joy that he was having looking out of the window, giving a running commentary on what was happening in the car park below and all the anecdotes. And she starts to smile to herself. So once they left the coffee, she thought, OK, right now I can just get to the units. We can buy them. We can get out of here. But again, Hank had different ideas. Every single thing in the shop he had to look at. He had to prod. He didn't, had to poke. He had to look at alternative meanings. And eventually Mary Jane starts to, to slow down and uh, she just marveled at the joy that he starts to have just looking at these things and also playing games with, with some of the things in the shop. So switching dimmer switches in display uh, kitchens and bedrooms up and down and looking at how the lighting changed the mood and the ambience, opening and shutting some of those light fitments to watch them expanding. If you've ever seen the, the Death Star, as I call it in Ikea, you'll know exactly what I mean. And eventually they did, you know, get all the kitchen selected, uh, all the measurements in, units ordered. And then Hank again insisted that now they had to stop and they had to have meatballs and lingonberry jelly and they had to do the whole lunch thing. So again, into the canteen they went. Hank had a wonderful time going up the escalators. That was a treat. He doesn't normally go up and down them. And this started to rub off on Mary Jane and they... Then concluded their trip by going through Market Hall and he bought a few tea towels and she bought some pots and pans. Anyway, the end result was this micro intention not only changed the day for Hank. So what could have been a chore in and out turned into a really good day out for Hank and a source of joy and enrichment. And Mary Jane started to relax, too, and, and see the different possibilities. So it changed the day for Mary Jane, too. So it's just an example here of how a micro intention can completely change the course of a day. So in contrast to Hank, Helen, the business centre manager, which I introduced at the start, uses micro intentions far less. So for Helen, core and nested intentions were where it was at. And they were the key drivers that informed her career progression and the way that she now lives her life. And I'm going to give you quite a detailed case study of Helen a little later on. So what's your intention? I asked you to set an intention um, right at the start of this presentation. And I'm wondering if um, through the magic of technology, a few of you could write some of your intentions into the chat box and then if Niall is hovering beautifully in the background if he can read a few of them out and, and share them with the group okay 
So we've got one here from Roisin Hamden and her intention is to help me to be happier and to achieve more of my goals, to have more of a positive mindset towards myself and other people, to add philosophies I could use if I start my own coaching business. Um, Jenny Knight, um, she wants to find out something about herself or discover a new strategy for looking deeper into herself. Simone Stolton wants to learn to grow to experiment. Um, Michelle Ryan, to enrich my knowledge, to inform my work with LOA. I'm not sure exactly what LOA is. Um, Louise's intention is to my own personal self-actualization and my connection with everything. Uh, Carolina Berta is to become a gestalt psychotherapist. Rachel to learn mm -hmm. how intentions can be used in my everyday life and my career. And Elsie Roberts, um, how to bring the use of intention to the workplace to help others. So there's quite a long list here. Julia, how many would you want me to read? That's, that's, that's fine to be going on with. So, Thank you for sharing those. Um, oh, there we go. So what I'm going to focus in on is some of them that you said as micro intentions. So some of the intentions you set were how you were going to use this and this were going to translate more into a core intention. So in fact, if I just go backwards one, you know, some of you will very much identify now your intentions with micro or with core. Um, if, I'm sure if we scroll down the list far enough, I'm not asking you to, Niall, we would come to a few mega intentions, but certainly it seems to have dropped into core and micro. And if you remember right at the beginning, you know, when I set this question, what I asked were, what's your intention for this workshop? So a lot of them are going to be micro intentions. I've just given you a few examples of intentions. So it's my intention to pay attention to the presentation to discover how intention could reshape my life. And we've had variants of that. It's my intention to pay attention to the presentation and discover how intention could help my clients. Again, we've had a version of that. It's my intention to improve my knowledge of the science that underpins intention. We've had that. And my intention to discover practical ways to work with intention that I can apply immediately after the workshop and several of you have also said using this in the workplace which is music to my heart and I'm really happy about that but however you use intention it's going to be life-changing in some shape or form it's just getting it right and again I'm wondering from what I presented already are you starting to think of some different ways to work with intention um, some different ways to shape or form your intentions. And again, just for a few moments, Niall, if we could have some people uh, just saying in the chat box, has anything that we've covered so far changed your thought on, on your intentions? So Michelle Ryan is saying that um, she's found the micro-intentions revolutionary. She's found them really, really big. Um, Simone is saying that the small and targeted intentions Yep. And and this this has been a little bit of a revelation to me, to be honest, because very much when I wrote the book, it was core. I was focusing on core and I just put nested intentions in there because some people needed some intentions that got them towards their core. But then I concluded there were these little moment changing intentions. But certainly when I do corporate work, especially these micro moment changing intentions, 
um, are really, really powerful. And in the research, they refer to them as implementation intentions. So the power of these micro intentions can't be underestimated. So unless there's anything really pertinent or any questions in the box, I'm going to move forward. Anything, Niall? Um, we've had loads of responses there just to, to your last question. Things like the belief in the in the possibility is massive. Micro-intention should be practiced by all. It'll help people better live in the present. Um, not really changed, but reinforced. We'll think more about micro-intentions and how I can apply them in the workplace. And this person has had 20 years of corporate life. That's Morgan. And yeah, so that's, there's quite a few there. And in fact, that, that last uh, comment really hit a note with me. Um, there's a case study in the book. There was a guy um, who had to go to a Friday meeting that he loathed. He had preconceptions for how it always went and what a drag it was going to be. But instead, he decided to set a micro intention that he was going to get his point across. The meeting was going to go smoothly and they were going to get some good outcomes from the meeting. And this intention totally changed the things he paid attention to and his actions. And the meeting had a whole different outcome. So it, it's powerful, powerful stuff. So I'm going to go into another little poll here, which is poll number two, please, uh, Niall, if you could just run it. Perfect. We had 70 answers for the final one is capable of mental time travel. Perfect. So I'm, glad and I'm really, really glad and to see that because actually, yep, you are absolutely bang on. Um, the mind is the only thing capable of mental time travel. You met, and if you think about how you talk about it, my mind has wandered, not my brain has wandered, my mind has wandered. So the brain is physical hardware, it occupies space in the skull it transmits information via chemical impulses and it gathers information via your five senses and it can only operate in the present moment so let's just elaborate on that a little bit and we'll get a little bit metaphysical next so again i was going to have some lovely reveals on this slide but the technology is showing the whole slide so i'm going to go with it so just like the debate on free will, the mind-brain connection has been debated since Socrates' time. And until fairly recently, the Newtonian model dominated. So this is the idea that neuronal activity in the brain creates consciousness. Now, in 1996, Professor Dan Sigal met with 40 scientists to agree a common understanding of the mind. And they concluded that, and this is in the little turquoise box, the mind cannot be confined to what's inside our skull or even inside our body. Really interesting research published in 2001, you can tell I love my research here, by von Lommel and all, which was published in no less than The Lancet, detailed um, the experiences of 34 patients who survived cardiac arrest and spent a certain period of time with flat EEG, so they had no brain activity, you know, they, they were dead in effect. And 12% of those people had near-death experiences. So in other words, they watched and they recalled events that happened when technically there was no brain activity and they were dead. So the argument is that if consciousness is a product of brain activity, this couldn't have happened. So the model on the right takes this into account a little bit more. 
Lommel actually concluded that the theory that consciousness and memories are localised within the brain needs to be discussed, which is a typical academic, cautious conclusion. But um, we're certainly moving towards a model of the consciousness existing separately and outside you know, the physical skull. So the model that we're moving towards is you know, the brain being informed by the mind and tapping into consciousness. Of course, the debate is, is it our own consciousness or a group consciousness or a higher consciousness? But I'm going to leave that debate as it is. The point is that it's the interaction particularly between the mind and the brain and this is informed one of the key models in intention matters. So a little bit of a comparison between the mind and the brain, and we've already touched on this, that the mind isn't physical, whereas the brain is. The mind is capable of time travel, but the brain can only operate in the present moment. I liken the mind to being the master. It's the power that's in control, whereas the brain is the humble servant, it, it follows instructions to the letter, which is why you need to be careful sometimes of what you wish for. The mind interprets and shapes your reality through thoughts and feelings, whereas the brain receives commands from your mind. The mind tasks the brain. The brain is activated or engaged by your mind. So You've got notes, you can come back to this, but you can see that there are some fairly profound differences between the mind and the brain. So I wanted to talk now about um, the neuroscience of intention and specifically the I am model, which I'm hoping you can all see on your screen. And the relationship between the mind and brain really heavily informs this. And it sets out how the mind tasks the brain, which sets in motion cognitive processes that lead to behaviours and things happening in the real world. Now, the exact neuroscience that underpins intention is still a matter of hot debate. Researchers have tried and failed on many, many occasions to identify the precise order or sequence of intention activation within the brain. Uh, the current thought is that the intention process within the brain is just simply too dynamic to map. And numerous researchers are now studying instead patterns within the brain associated with intention activation. So what we do know is that a number of brain networks are triggered by intentions, and these inform the I am model. Only 5 to 10% of our brain activity is actually conscious. Uh, you could think of the conscious mind as the conductor, whilst the subconscious is actually the orchestra. Now, if you set clear intentions, the conductor can guide the orchestra to work together in harmony and produce beautiful results. But if the conductor is unclear or has fuzzy intentions, as I like to describe them, um, you can just imagine what's going to happen. Now, I have a friend who's single and she'd really like to be in a settled relationship. And so she set an intention to get a boyfriend and she often told me that she wanted a, a boyfriend that would like Keanu Reeves. 
And she phoned me one day, really excited to say that she had met this guy. You know, wasn't intention great because, you know, he was the spitting image of Keanu Reeves and wasn't this wonderful. And over the next six to eight weeks, it quickly became apparent that although he looked like Keanu Reeves, he was a bit of an idiot and he wasn't particularly pleasant. And so, you know, she wondered where her intention had gone wrong. Well, the point was she had unclear or fuzzy intention. You know, she'd stated that she wanted a, you know, a boyfriend like Keanu Reeves. So in effect, you know, her brain had been searching for people who looked like Keanu Reeves, but she hadn't given the property of Keanu Reeves, you know, perhaps the intelligence or the conversation or the kindness or all the other things that are really important in a relationship. So her intention was delivered, but because she was fuzzy and unclear about what she actually wanted, she didn't actually get what she needed. So, you know, just again, this idea of, you know, being clear and intentional. And sometimes it's a little bit of a, an iterative process. You set the intention that feels right. And then if it isn't quite right when it's delivered, you refine it and refine it until eventually, you know, you get to a state where you're getting the intention that you desire. And again, you know, a little bit more about this shortly. So we really need to pay careful attention to our intentions Remember that the brain is your humble servant and it follows your instructions in the form of intention. So really be careful what you ask for. So I talked a little bit about the brain networks. And as I say, the exact sequence that happens within the brain is, is not yet known. But we do know some of the brain networks that are, are heavily involved in intentions. So Looking at the model, within the mind, you have a deep, sincere desire. You have a belief that is possible. And your mind then allocates attention and activates your will, which then causes the brain to harness various cognitive processes. And the cognitive processes that underpin the achievement of intention include the attention network. And again, this was an animated slide. Sorry, Niall, not having a dig. I we didn't discuss this, so I didn't realise it was going to just show the slide as a whole. So I was going to show you the areas of the brain that were associated with each of these networks. But just as a summary, you know, we know that the attention network, default mode network, the working memory, emotion regulation, the reward circuitry and habit formation uh, circuits are involved. And these trigger, depending on which network is in force at the time, all of these brain areas. So... Um, Setting an intention actually works really, really powerful in the background at an unconscious level, harnessing these cognitive processes that are working away in the background, even when you don't know that they're working away, in order to deliver your intention. And this leads your body to take action, so it guides your behaviour and things start to happen in the real world. So... To summarise before we go on to the next section, when the mind is clear on your intentions, these are some of the brain networks that get triggered. Um, and we have various intention forms, micro-intention, nested intentions, core intentions and mega-intentions. As emphasised, uh, micro-intentions are really quite important. And it's thought that the mind exists separately from the brain. 
and that the mind tasks the brain, which leads to cognitive processes that then guide our behaviours and make things happen in the real world. And remember that most of our brain activity is unconscious. You know, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of our brain activity that we're consciously guiding it. It's churning away in the background. So we need to be really clear about our intention to start the process correctly and set into motion powerful cognitive processes that make things happen in the real world. So moving on now uh, towards applications and practicalities. So poll number three, please, Niall. And if we close the poll now, that would be simply fantastic. Thank you. So as the slide that I was going to slowly reveal has already revealed some of the answers, I'm not surprised uh, by the outcome. Yeah, it does inform pretty much everything that we do, often at an unconscious level. So often we don't consciously intend certain things to happen, but it certainly does shape things. And some examples of this are your choice of life partners, the way you raise your children, where you live, the car you drive, how much money you have, and your decision, in fact, this weekend to attend the weekend university. And limiting beliefs can really inhibit the way that you work with intentions. And in reality, these limitations are largely self-imposed. But any of you who are coaches or mentors out there will know just how much work it can be sometimes to get people to work around these limiting beliefs so that they don't get in the way. So examples of limiting beliefs might be I'll never get the job or I'm not good enough or not smart enough, etc. So I talk a lot about the difference between goals and intentions. So again, going back to the intention, the I am model, um, if you look at intentions with the ticks uh, versus goals, so goals tend to be future-focused, whereas intentions are bigger and bolder and they're rooted in the present moment. Goals by their nature are often very narrow and restricted, so especially think of SMART goals that we have with organisations, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and time-bound. A goal tends to be a destination, a destination or specific achievement, whereas an intention, as I mentioned earlier, you may set it and it may be happening in the future, but it's lived every day and it's completely independent of reaching a goal or destination. Often a goal is, is short term, especially organisational goals here, whereas intentions are often longer terms. The goals are usually fixed and logical, whereas intentions can be quite creative and intuitive. A goal at work is often externally imposed or superficial, whereas an intention tends to be more heartfelt, more personal and arises from deep within. So looking at this model, you can see why intentions tend to act more powerfully than goals. Uh, I could ask you a question in a chat box just, just to say how many of you have been set a goal at work and not achieved it or set yourself a New Year's resolution and not achieved it. And I think you know, that you'd come to the conclusion that an awful lot of us set goals that just don't come to fruition. Whereas intentions tick so many more boxes and you can see why they act a lot more powerfully um, than goals. Now, um, when I do coaching and consultancy work, clients often um, struggle to say how they're going to transition goals to intention and I've developed a model to help with this so more about that in a moment but if you're too focused on goals um, it can be a problem now 
being overly focused on goals was never a problem for Hank. Remember the case study of Hank? In fact, the idea of goal setting was far too corporate for him. But for Helen, she was very, very wedded to goals indeed. And in a moment, I'm going to show you I'll show you how I helped her to start to move from goals towards intentions. So this is the model that I created uh, for coaches um, to try to articulate how we move from goals to intentions. Because when you go into organisations, the idea of just setting an intention rather than a goal can be a huge leap for many people. And I did a lot of thinking about this. So, you know, this is the think, feel, know model. So a lot of people are very stuck in the thinking. You know, I do. Cognitive, left brain, logical. And there is a transition period, and it's not always instant. It can take quite a bit of time. Moving towards feeling, I feel, tapping into emotions, um, using the right brain more and being more creative. And when working with intentions, you're moving more towards knowing I am, uh, a sense of embodiment in what you do, balancing both left and right brain. So often we're, we're far too left brain dominant in the West at the moment, and being both logical and creative. So we move from left brain to whole brain. So I, I'd be really happy to answer questions on this when we get to the Q&A. But this is one of the models that I use, firstly with clients, but also with coaches when um, they're trying to think of how they can get their clients to transition and slowly, slowly move towards intentions. And what I tend to find is that um, when you actually get people working with intentions and they start to get powerful results, they tend to get hooked and their preconceptions drop. The really difficult bit is getting people started working with intentions, just like mindfulness. Um, I can talk about mindfulness, but it's only when people have experienced a little bit of mindfulness, they feel the benefits, they see how it changed their life, then they get hooked, preconceptions drop, and off we go. So this is my attempt at trying to provide a logical model that will help people transition from goals to intentions. So moving on from that, as I said, and I wanted to use my models and the case studies together to illustrate how they work. So this is the idea framework that is central to intention matters. So in step one, you identify your intention. You don't over-labor it. You just come up with the concept. You then distill and refine it as necessary. And again, it isn't laboring too much, but you refine it. You get it to look right and feel right. You then start to embody it. You start to, to live it. You let it take form. And this leads to actions happening in the real world. So let's look at Hank and Helen and how this model applies to them. So starting off with Hank, his journey through this model was really very straightforward. So in step one, um, which is initiate, he had a really clear intention from the outset of what he wanted. He wanted to live off grid, he wanted to live frugally, and he only wanted to work on a part-time basis. So in step two, he distilled this by working out what he really wanted, how much land, where it was going to be located, and more importantly, what he didn't work, want. And this helped him to work through and create some really clear implementation intentions that helped him to get going. So in steps three and four, which is embody and embed and, um, and take action, 
things just flowed and they really started to take shape quickly and smoothly. And from there on, really, his work of intention has been very much at the implementation micro-intention level. And these, this is what's kept him moving day to day, moment to moment, as he's grown his intentions further. Now, Hank had no rigid expectations about how his intentions would actually unfold. He just knew they would. And he just dealt with whatever arose as it arose. And his core intention and inner GPS just acted, sorry, his core intention acted as his inner GPS and it guided his actions and decisions. So when working with intention, it's really important to be completely clear about what you want and then to hold your intention lightly. So if like the man right at the beginning of this presentation, stuck on the roof with floodwaters rising, if we're too rigid in our expectations and how the intention will unfold, we miss all sorts of unexpected opportunities that lead us to the result we desire. Now, Helen's journey through the idea framework um, was really very, very different. So I'm going to cover Helen's case study in quite some detail. So we started off in a coaching session and Helen's stated that her intentions were her work-related goals. So to enhance her communication skills, to become better at motivating her team, to support and manage change better, and to improve staff retention within her division. So I questioned her, you know, why did she really want to achieve these? And she looked at me in complete disbelief and she told me with quite some force that these were perfectly logical goals. And these were things that she intended to achieve. So I asked, why are these important to you? And she paused. And after giving them a little thought, she said, I want to make my company and especially my division a really great place to work. I want to support, empower and develop my staff. I want to be recognized as a really great leader. I want to gain promotion. I want to get access to new and exciting challenges at work. So in step two, after the coaching session, I tasked Helen to spend some time considering her core intentions for her life and her career and what was important and what she really wanted from life if there were absolutely no constraints. So in the distilled part, several weeks later, we met up again. And Helen said that she'd found this exercise to be a really valuable exercise. And when she'd stripped away the layers of what she really wanted, her core intentions were refined too, to become the best leader she could be, to earn a sufficient income so that she could live comfortably in a home and do the things that she loved to do. So that was sounding more like a core intention to me. In step three, in body and in bed, Helen asked herself, you know, what's really important now and where do I want to put my energy? And she found herself thinking about her house. She thought about the kitchen that she loved to cook in. She thought about the open plan living spaces within her house and the outdoor terrace that she loved to entertain in. And she thought about her friends who lived nearby visiting 
And the answer became really clear to her. She wanted to continue living there into old age. She had six years left to pay the mortgage and she decided that she wanted to pay it off as soon as possible so she could get on and start living her intention. So over the next few weeks, she reviewed her finances and she managed to increase her mortgage payments. She also set a nested intention to apply for the director's vacancy that she'd been dithering about until that point. She reasoned that by getting this promotion, it would increase her earnings. And this, again, would help her to pay off the mortgage a couple of years early. And in addition, it would apply a greater opportunity for her to develop her leadership capacity more. So in step four, taking action and grabbing opportunities, Helen was actually um, shortlisted for the director's role. And she invested a huge amount of time and energy preparing for the interview. She drafted a new strategy and a vision for the company moving forward. And she presented this in the interview and she was absolutely delighted to be offered the role. Now, each month she paid a little bit more of the mortgage, working towards being mortgage free in four years. Her achievements over time really surpassed her wildest dreams. Then really unexpectedly, the chairman of the board died suddenly and the board were completely thrown into turmoil. A new chairman was hastily appointed and the chairman didn't see eye to eye with Helen at all. And Helen's pleasure and sense of mastery in a new role starts to completely dissolve and her confidence eroded day by day. So after a few weeks of deep discomfort and wondering why her intention was going so wrong, she revisited her intentions again, which were to become the best leader that she could be and to earn a sufficient income to live comfortably in her house and then be able to do the things that she loved to do in her life. And so this made her recognise that she was now only three and a half years away from paying off her mortgage and that the job wasn't forever just for a few short years. And this really, she said, it really lifted the weight of her shoulders and gave her a fresh perspective. She recognised that this was simply a small obstacle to be overcome in pursuit of a greater personal and organisational goal. So she did some work to help the board recognise that they needed some external help, that they were in trouble. And a consultant worked with the board to help them assess their psychological sense of safety and the dynamics that were in play using a brain-based perspective so that they can then start to work together more effectively. And this got things back on track. So what was the outcome of all of this? So three years later, Helen's mortgage was fully paid off. Her work in in transforming the organisation and increasing employee motivation and organisational effectiveness via the introduction of purpose-based leadership models gained her international recognition and a fair amount of press coverage. And as interest grew in her approach and experiences in purpose-based leadership, she spent an increasing amount of time helping others in organisations, external organisations, to transform. And she found that this was something that she really loved to do. So originally, when she set out her first intentions, she anticipated working less in the future so that she'd have more time to do the things that she loved. But she realised that she now loved her job so much that she didn't want to work less. She was already doing the things that she loved. 
And Helen's newly found financial freedom allowed her to make choices based on her wants rather than her needs. Now, my reason for sharing Helen's case story with you in some depth is to illustrate that the process of intention activation isn't always linear as indicated in this diagram. This diagram is just to make things straightforward. Sometimes you actually move backwards and forwards through the model as you work with intention. The idea framework encouraged Helen to set intentions and then hold them lightly. And in this way, she was able to flex and adapt to the opportunities that arose and to overcome barriers and obstacles. If she was too rigid with her expectations, like the man stuck on the roof as the floodwaters rose, or my friend who had fuzzy intentions looking for a boyfriend like Keanu Reeves, uh, the results would probably have been much less satisfactory. So moving on now to a little look potentially at the future. And I don't know if you can see this, but this is based very much on some 2016 research, which was uh, published by Bearsen for use by Deloitte. So what I think is happening is the business environment from the 1950s to today has been dominated by thinking, the left brain and logical decisions. We've transitioned from being industrial corporations to hierarchical leadership, collaborative leadership and network of teams. You know, we've had an importance in operational effectiveness, uh, profit, growth, financial engineering, moving to customer service, moving to mission, purpose and sustainability. We've moved from management by objective to servant leadership, working together and empowering the team. And there have been various gurus who have influenced us. And interestingly, at the moment, it's thought that the likes of Google and Facebook and Netflix and even Amazon are influencing um, behavior of individuals and also within organizations. So we've moved from, you know, the corporation is king to the executives are king, to the people are kings, to the team teams and team leaders are kings. So what I think is going to start emerging, it may take 10 or more years, is we're going to start moving towards a model of more thinking, right brain and being creative, you know, knowing left and right brain working together, being logical and creative. So we could call this quantum leadership. And the idea is that we then have shared prosperity and world betterment. We have an intention driven shared value and effectiveness I don't know who the guru is going to be. Maybe there won't be any gurus. Maybe we will be the gurus. And hopefully we'll move towards a more thriving biosphere, inclusiveness, fairness, true engagement and well-being. So the idea is that I think we're starting to move slowly but surely towards intention, purpose, meaning and empowerment. So I guess... The question is, in summary, what I've said is intention is a deep, sincere desire, and it's underpinned by a belief that it's possible. The research base is young, but it's growing. The applications are limitless. And just remember that your brain is your humble servant, so give it clear instructions. I believe that smart goals are much less effective than clear intentions. We need to start shifting from thinking to knowing. 
And remember that mindfulness turbocharges intention. Now, intention matters. I didn't insist on people having mindfulness to work in intentions because I didn't want to put people off. But if you do have a foundation of mindfulness, it really does turbocharge intention. In fact, I describe intention as mindfulness plus one. So intention really, really matters. And I'd like to leave you with a thought. And this is where will your intention take you? So thank you very much for your attention today. I've left half an hour so we can have plenty of questions and answers. So any questions, anyone? Hi, Niall. I've lost you again. Are you coming back? There you are. Hello. Can you see me now? Yeah. I can see you okay, now. Great. So, um, yeah, we've got quite a few questions to get through here in the half an hour. So, the first one is Good. from uh, Ruth. And she's asking, how does somebody work on the belief aspect of intention? Because I know that's very important. Yeah, it is extremely important. So, um, the first thing is to know that you have a belief. So anyone who's worked with mindfulness knows that most of the time we're in autopilot, so we're not aware of our actions. So the first thing is surfacing those beliefs and then working with them. Uh, a shortcut answer is sometimes we need to stem back our intentions. So maybe you have uh, an intention, maybe you're working in a shop, let's just say. I'm just, just completely um, making up an example that you're working in a shop but you want to be a senior manager in a corporate environment so you might set that intention you might have a deep sincere desire but your belief is saying I work in a shop they're not going to employ me I haven't got the track record so you then sort of take it back a shade so you know you take it back to the point that you get um, the deep sincere desire and the belief so it could be you know I want to start managing within a retail environment and just to have a very junior superficial role. And you work back until you have that deep belief and you work from there. But the other way that you can do it, if you're working with uh, a coach or a consultant, is to work to surface those self-limiting beliefs and uh, to address some of them before you work with intention. But often I just, I, I often find just getting people to stem it back until the belief and the intention are there then work on that. And then once you've achieved that, your belief grows and changes and off you go from there. So the next question from, uh, it's from Kelly and she's asking, could intention be both proximal and distal? For example, someone chooses daily health choices to end the day to feel well, but longer term to have less health problems. The distal intention motivates the proximal intentions too. Yeah, absolutely. So as I explained earlier, um, in intention matters, I describe all intentions as being present moment. So, of course, you can have both. And if you remember, again, with the intention forms, in intention matters, I've got this neat little diagram where all the intentions sit within each other. But actually, you can have a core intention, so your long-term intention, and also the micro, the micro or the short-term present moment intention, and they can work together in harmony. Cool. Um so someone has asked as well about how do you, I think it was Elsie, she's asked, how do you work with clients with intention? When someone comes to you with, with something they want to work on, like what does your process for working with them look like? 
So it's 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 the idea model. Um, I, I'm thinking, can I go back and just see if I can get to it? So very much, and I'll see if we can get back to it. It's this model. So we start off with just trying to get them to identify. It doesn't matter quite how outlandish it is. It's just getting some ideas on the table, not over-laboring or over-analyzing them. Let's just get some ideas. So it's a questioning format. And there are a number of questions. There are some meditation-based exercises. And in fact, in Intention Matters, there's a chapter around each of these stages with techniques that you can use. And the exact technique that you use will vary from person to person because you'll know the technique that'll work for the person. So there's all sorts of different ways. So you help them to identify, then you help them to refine and distill a little bit, and then you help them to normally, to be honest, stages three and four just happen as a result, but sometimes I have to help people with three and four. But generally speaking, um, once you the, the very hardest bit is, is step one and two are the hardest bit. If you can get them through steps one and two, using methodologies that work for them and resonate for them, and as I say, lots and lots of them are in the book, then normally the ENA part, steps three and four, just happen. So, Niall, I've lost your video feed, um, but are you still I'm there? still here, yep. Um, so okay. I don't know what's happened, but I'm, I'm still here. So, okay, that's, that's great. The next question is from Sarah, and Sarah has asked, is intention an ongoing process? Many clients think that they have so many intentions and midway an intention changes, and so their focus changes. I understand that each intention also has layers. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think when a person has so many intentions, you have to sort of almost lump it up and up and up and up until you get to that core. You know, I, I know that we talk about Hank had lots of micro intentions, uh, but then he was incredibly clear and focused on his core. And, you know, he got that fairly rapidly. So I think the thing is to uh, most of the intentions, when you actually use a questioning process in these two stages, it will come down to much something much higher level, like Helen's intention. And if you remember, you know, she started with work-related goals, but then she fine-tuned it into the fact that, you know, she wants to be the best leader she could be, but she also wants to keep her home, stay living there and enjoy doing the things that she liked to do. So when you can lump it up to something that simple, then, you know, everything falls out of it. But little tiny intentions all over the place can be quite scattergun. Um, so there are so many different ways you can work with intention. The classic model would be identify the core and everything falls out of it. But for some people, that's such a difficult question that you have to start with some little quick wins or hang, picking some low-hanging fruit and work from there. Cool, cool. Okay. So we've got a question from Olivia here, and she's asking about... Um, how can the brain be the servant of the mind when hormones and neurotransmitters can take over people's lives and mental health? For example, if someone gets depression, um, she can see, see that the mind plays a significant role here, for example, in recovery, but she's curious in, to see the, how, how can it be the master? Yeah, because um, it's the mind tasking the brain to let out the neurotransmitters that have this profound impact. You know, if the mind was sending different messages to the brain, we wouldn't have these neurotransmitters um, released into the brain. They so I'm not diminishing, I'm not saying that um, the effect of these neurotransmitters are little, they're huge, they are massive, and they have more of an impact. You know, we are 
a victim of our emotions. Emotions are so powerful in guiding uh, in, in guiding actions. But at the end of the day, it is the mind and what's going on that tasks the brain to release the transmitters that make us feel in a certain way, which then affect the way we act and the way that we behave. So I'm not saying that this is simple or easy and there isn't a really quick um, succinct answer because this is still an area of, of great debate. But yeah, I'm not diminishing in any way the power that these neurotransmitters have, but effectively it is the brain triggering them in uh, response to a threat or a perception of threat. A hundred percent. Okay, so the next question here is from Kelly and Kelly's asking, is intention setting more about who somebody wants to become rather than an outcome? So it's more developed character becoming well, it could be. It it it's so varied from person to person. It doesn't have to be. Um, so if we take mega intentions, that's a world changing intention. So one of the case studies on the Intention Life and Matters website is about Advic, who's a social entrepreneur, and for him, it isn't about changing himself. It's about changing aspects of the world. So for some people, it is. You know, they want to be a kinder person or, you know, a, a more compassionate person or a more grateful person or a better manager or a better leader. Uh, but for other people, it's more about things in their life. So, again, going back to Helen, you know, living in her house, carrying on doing the things that, that she wanted. So I'm not sure if that's answered the question or not. OK, well, I think you have. I think you have. The next <laughs> question is from uh, Tracy McEachran, and she's asked, what is the difference between intention and purpose? What's in a word? <laughs> um, purpose and intention are very, very closely linked. And certainly in, in organisational um, literature, they're very, very closely linked. Um, would you say that it was Helen's purpose in life to be the best leader she could be or her purpose in life to continue living in her house? Um, maybe the leader was part of the purpose bit, but the living in the house wasn't necessarily part of her purpose. So I think they're linked, but distinct, but have some distinct differences as well. Okay, cool. And we've got another similar question like that from Ella. And she, Ella has asked, what is the difference between implementation, intention and motivation? Ah, now there's, now if you remember in that particular experiment uh, with the exercise, do you remember there was a group who were just told to exercise, a second group were given motivational talks. So they were motivated. They were given really, really good reasons why they should exercise, why exercising was a good thing. And um, the third group were set implementation in, intentions. So there was some very specific wording that helped them get an intention that helped them to implement the action. They weren't told it was an implementation intention, of course, but effectively that was, that's what it was. So... The people who, so if you remember, the people who were just told to do the exercise and given the motivation, it was between 34, if I remember correctly, and 38%. So I think it was only about a 2 or 3% difference between groups one and two. So the researchers concluded that motivation alone doesn't change behaviour. So obviously, you know, if you're motivated, if you really, really want, so you have a deep, sincere desire that is a form of motivation that's going to help drive your intention forward. But motivation alone isn't the active ingredient. The researchers concluded that it was the intentional element that really made the difference. In this case, the implementation intention. But but 
it's got broader connotations. Cool, cool. Okay, so we've got a question here from Kate, a really interesting one actually. Can the power of intention work against a person if it is based on fear instead of belief, such as a person having the intention to avoid being abandoned and this could potentially create a self-fulfilling prophecy? Absolutely. Hugely. So this is, and I, I deliberately skirted around the issue because of the immense amount of conversation that we can have about it, but obviously we have unconscious intentions as well as conscious. And a lot of my work is around conscious intention setting. But sure, if we have uh, an unconscious intention, can you just read what she said again? To um, So, just deleted it, sorry, two seconds. I know, it's probably scrolled up the screen by now. So the question is, can the power of intention work against a person if it is based on fear instead of belief, such as a person having the intention to avoid being abandoned and this creates itself so, so the intention is to avoid being abandoned. So, you know, if your driver is, I must avoid being abandoned, I must avoid being abandoned, then you're going to make all sorts of probably quite unhealthy choices that lead to behaviours that don't lead to terribly happy outcomes. So... It's only when you, you, you have somebody really who can help you to surface that that is an intention that you've set, that you can start to work with it. So it, it's certainly a Pandora's box when you go into unconscious and unhelpful intentions. Um, and certainly there, there's some really interesting applications here for working um, in therapy with this as well. Very interesting. We've got a question now from uh, Louise who's asked, what is needed to be aware of and address any self-limiting beliefs, either either sub unconscious or subconscious, please? So, the, there again, in the chapter associated with that, there are a number of methodologies which are given. There are plenty more of them. But one of the techniques that I find most effective, especially if you've done just a little bit of mindfulness, is checking how it feels in the body. So checking your gut instinct, if you like. And, and you may be aware that the gut is known as the little brain. There are a huge amount of neuronal uh, pathways in the gut. So the gut is sending messages from the bottom up faster than they're coming top down. So also the gut taps into your emotional state. So if you can tap into your gut instinct, does this feel right? And if the answer is no, it may not give you an explanation for why it isn't right, but it's a starting point for working with it. So that's probably the easiest technique that I know. Check in with your gut instinct, see if it, you know, doesn't see if it feels right. And if it doesn't, continue to work backwards until you get equilibrium between the deep sincere desire and the belief. Okay, okay. Um one from Jenny here. Um, how could one disprove intention setting? It feels a bit like if something doesn't work out, um, for example, the Keanu Reeves boyfriend example, it's because <laughs> intentions weren't right and not because of a flaw in the model. Or could you say the belief wasn't there or it wasn't a true deep-seated desire? There doesn't seem to be a way it could be disproved. Interesting question. I mean, going back to that uh, Keanu case study, um, we did actually, she, she's quite a dear friend of mine, and we did discuss it. And she came up with the idea that it's a fuzzy intention. You know, that she she had been specific kind of about the look, but she knew nothing about Keanu Reeves. She hadn't read his bio or what he was like in his personal life or his characteristics. So she'd just focus on Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves. And that's what got delivered. Okay. Um, we've got one here from Catherine. 
With regards to the motivation versus implementation intention experiment, was there a group giving the implementation intention but without the motivational speech? Do you think the effect yeah. of implementation intention would have been as powerful without the motivational speech beforehand? Well, that's a good question. Um, and the answer is no, it was just it was just free groups. Um, so good question. But certainly there have been a number of experiments since looking at the motivation aspect. And they found that if there isn't a deeper desire to do something, and often the implementation intention triggers that desire, that the motivation alone doesn't work. So you can be high. I mean, we could do a poll here. We could do a chat box and say, you know, how many of you have decided the new year that you need to lose weight or even post-lockdown? Uh, how many of you did decide to exercise? And at the time when you set that, you were really, really, really motivated, but then you didn't translate it into, well, next week I'm going to go out for a walk with my friend or whatever it might have been. So... Okay, um, we've got one more question here, Juliet. It's from Tracy Lee, and she's asking, what is the difference between accountability and intention? That's a good question. I'd have to look at the dictionary definition of accountability, really, here to answer that. Um, to me, my gut instinct about sort of sitting down and working out a really reasonable response to this is that they're totally different things. Um, you can be, hold yourself accountable. And I guess if you hold yourself accountable, often you're putting yourself under a certain amount of pressure. You're, you're creating self-judgment. And this can trigger the threat response, which then puts you under pressure so that your mid and lower brain take the driving seat rather than your higher brain, you know, your conscious thinking brain, which uh, creates new ideas and fresh perspectives and allows you to see, you know, the helicopter and the rowboat as they come along. Along, so to me, they, they they are totally different things. But I can't give you probably a really succinct reason for why they're different things without sitting down and carefully considering the exact definition of that. So I'm sorry if I haven't quite answered it, but to me, they are quite quite different things. Yeah, no, they seem to be okay. So we've got one more here from Anand, uh, and Anand has asked: Does intention influence our belief, or? Does belief influence our intention? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, I think they influence one another. To me, the intention comes first, and then we check in with the belief. But then you could equally argue that you have a belief which then shapes the intention. So the answer is, I don't have an answer to that. Sorry. Okay, no worries. Well, that's pretty much all the questions we've got. That was quite a, an intense 20 minutes there. Um, so, Julia, thank you so much for a brilliant presentation. I think the feedback has been really positive for it, so great job. Thank you. Have you got anything you'd like to share um, before we before we sign off here or any links you want people to go to or anything like that there? Well, on the hand, did you have? has everyone had a copy of the handout? Yes. So I've put some of my contact details onto the handout. But if you're interested in intention, the website isn't perfect, but intention-matters.com, the Hank and Helen and another four case studies are on there, which show that you can have very different journeys through this idea model. And again, 
although the diagram suggests it's linear and you go down it actually it's more of a continuum so you go backwards and forwards along it so just bear that in mind and bear in mind there isn't a one size fits all there are so many ways to work with this model so visit intention matters um please give me your feedback I've, I've given you email contacts and things let me know what you think of the model let me know if you think something needs changing because this is an ever-changing piece and as i say the book was written around core intentions but more and more micro intentions corporate clients it's the way to go the implementation intentions the micro intentions and there's a lot of power underneath that the evidence base is growing but uh, you know give it a go try it in your life you know what will your intentions bring you and i'm just really hoping that my intention for the presentation has been met and that you're all a little bit more excited about intentions and they're going to start playing with them and seeing what they can do in your life brilliant Juliet. well thank you so much and keep up the great work and we'll speak soon okay okay all the very best <laughs>